My name is Tim. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at North Langley. I want to extend my welcome to you. If you're new here, especially if you're new to Jesus and you're just uh, maybe at the beginning of your journey of trying to figure out who this Jesus person is, we're just so glad that you're here. We hope that as we dive into the Bible and what it says about Jesus that uh, you'll discover some things that hopefully are helpful to you. Um, And just, yeah, really grateful for you. I just want to also say super grateful for our ushers. They have some hard work to do these days. So thank you guys and men and women who are doing that. Just a little shout out to them. Appreciate it. So we are in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long time. Um, The Gospel of Luke is a biography written by one of Jesus' followers, um, just kind of giving a, a a wide picture of why people became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we're getting to that point in the story where the heat is really starting to to be amped up. And Jesus is confronting many of his opponents and he's very soon gonna be taken, uh, arrested, and crucified and uh, eventually leading to the resurrection. So it's a really exciting time to be in the Gospel of Luke. Well, for a few years, when our kids were young, Fridays were always family fun night. We'd choose a fun activity, it's usually a video most of the time, we'd get some treats and we'd have a little bit of fun together. But one weekend, my wife Cindy and I decided we'd do a special surprise getaway for us and the kids. They'd pick me up from work and instead of heading home, we would drive to Whistler where we'd booked a suite for the, for the weekend. Now, it didn't take long before our kids realized that our minivan wasn't taking the familiar route back to our house. They started to ask questions. Where are we going? Surprise. No, where are we going? (laughs) Just trust us. We're not going home? No, we're going somewhere special. But it's family fun night. (laughs) Guys, it is going to be fun. This isn't family fun night. This is family terrible night. (laughs) Guys, no matter how much we assured them that we had their best interests in mind, the tears were flowing and the van erupted in tantrums. And finally, we actually had to pull over on the side of the road and explain what we were doing. And even then, it took more promises before they finally settled down. Okay, we still get to watch a video? See, the things that they knew blinded them to the possibilities that we had in store for them. They simply could not conceive of an adventure any bigger or better than the family fun nights that they knew. Now, there's many ways that blindness can undermine our openness to something new. Sometimes our blindness is innocent, like with our kids, and other times it's willful blindness. In 1937, author and philosopher Aldous Huxley wrote a fascinating admission in an essay in his book, Ends and Means. He was writing this critique to this popular assumption that you can get to meaning just by thinking about it, just by reason. And he observed this. This is a little dense, but this is what he says. He says, no philosophy is completely disinterested. The pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with the need, consciously or unconsciously felt, by even the noblest and the most intelligent philosophers 
to justify a given form of personal or social behavior. And then he reflected on an earlier chapter of his own life. He said, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. The supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied the meaning, a Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people, in other words, shutting them down, and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. Wanting to be free of sexual and political constraints, Huxley had deliberately embraced skepticism, atheism, and nihilism. Now, by the time he wrote these words, Huxley himself had come to see and, uh, that this attitude had blinded him to perhaps a more transcendent, a more mystical world than he'd imagined. And he sought after that kind of world for the rest of his life. It's normal in modern society to be skeptical about everything, to have doubts and reservations about the things that we hear. And skepticism can be a useful tool. There's enough scams and propaganda and conspiracy theories and exaggerations out there that we could end up in the ditch if we listened to everything uncritically. But can we trust our skepticism any more than these other threats? As Huxley began to wonder, what if we're justifying our way into positions we want to be true? What if in constructing a world of our own choosing, we miss out on a world far more wide and wonderful than we could ever imagine? Is it possible that our limited perspective could blind us to the life-giving power of God? Today in Luke chapter 20, as Jesus draws closer and closer to his passion and crucifixion, there's a new gang of opponents on his back, the Sadducees. And these men are reasonable men who think they've created an unsolvable brain teaser for Jesus. They aim to bring scorn on Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God. They want to justify their own secular view of the world and their privileged place in it. They'd fit quite comfortably in our modern skeptical age. Ourselves being products of this modern age, probably we would feel comfortable among them. But Jesus' solution to their brain teaser is surprising and puzzling in its own way. With his superior wisdom and vision of reality, Jesus wants to heal them and perhaps heal us of our blindness to the life-giving power of God. I invite you to pray with me. 
Lord, we confess we come this morning with a limited perspective that may blind us to you. In the words of Paul in Ephesians 1, may the eyes of our heart be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, and we'll be beginning at verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob, or Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. I don't know about you, but that is an odd passage of scripture. You have any questions about this one? I definitely did. Well, first, let's put it in context. Jesus is in this cage match with his opponents. One set of opponents will come at him with a trick question, and then when they fail to pin him to the mat, they'll tag out, and another set of opponents goes in for their turn. They try to challenge his authority or trick him into compromising allegiances. And each time, Jesus answers in ways that expose their illegitimate leadership, their duplicity. So now a new team tags into the cage match. Some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. So who are these guys, the Sadducees? Scholars tell us they they were the most politically conservative and secular of the religious movements of Israel at the time. They were also the most politically influential. They saw their Bible as a source of moral law to a limit, but they, weren't, they, they were quite skeptical of the prophetic elements of their scriptures. They were highly invested in gaining influence in the secular halls of power. And they were skeptics when it came to the supernatural and the Jewish hope of resurrection. Now really, the Sadducees were in bed with the Romans and the Herodian leaders. So they had a stake in their not being a kingdom of God, like Jesus described. So, they propose a brain teaser. Teacher, verse 28, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow 
and raise up an offspring for his brother. This is a law that is in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and the rationale is given there. The first son she bears from the brother-in-law shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. In a sense, a man's hope was his children. To die without having children was to be cheated of the afterlife that you were due. This law accounted for that threat to the family's continued existence and to their inheritance. Okay, this say the Sadducees. We all agree this is a binding law. Well, riddle me this, Jesus. Verse 29, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. You wonder what she was feeding all those men. <laughs> anyway... Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Don't you love theologians? They can come up some great arguments. But here's what they're thinking. Genesis 2 says that a husband and wife are one flesh. In other words, monogamy. This law permits a woman to potentially marry seven men in turn in the present age. Very tragic story. Now, who is she going to be monogamous with when they're all resurrected in this alleged age to come? Since this is a puzzle that can't be solved, therefore, there can't be a resurrection. Jesus is talking nonsense, and we can disregard him. That's what they're trying to do here. Imagine those smug looks on their faces as they think, ha-ha, now we've got him. And the crowd's going, I don't know, do you? What's going on here? But these men have allowed their limited perspective to blind them to the life-giving power of God. And Jesus wants to heal their blinded eyes. So he exposes the flaw in their conception of resurrection and the age to come. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, it's, Jesus is recorded as saying, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So verse 34, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. They're God's children, since they're children of the resurrection. Now, I know we have questions right away about marriage in the age to come, but we'll get there. First, let's not miss the deeper flaw that Jesus is pointing out here. Jesus is saying that the kind of resurrection that they've imagined and therefore rejected is based on a faulty assumption. It's based on the faulty assumption that God can't work outside the limits that we observe at work in this age. In other words, their limited perspective has blinded them to God's life-giving power. They've settled for family fun night when God has a trip to the stars in store for them. Jesus explains this, right? The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. And in patriarchal societies, marriage is how you secure your hope for the future. In marriage, you make and raise a family and preserve the family's prosperity. It's your most tangible hope in this world 
And that's why the law about the brother stepping in was so important. But the age to come is different. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. They are God's children since they're children of the resurrection. That's an intense little section Jesus says there, right? He's countering their brain teaser by making an important point. They are thinking too small. The age to come is of a completely different quality and nature from the age we live in. It will be so different from the age, the laws, sorry, it will be so different that the laws of this age will be completely irrelevant and obsolete. It'd be like having a speed limit for a horse and buggy on the Autobahn. It's pointless. And Jesus says they can no longer die for they're like the angels in heaven. They're God's children since they're children of the resurrection. Now Jesus is not saying that people become angels when they die, kind of like the little cartoon where up comes the angel, right? Rather, a resurrected humanity will share key qualities with the angels. They'll be immortal. Their bodies won't be able to, they won't decay or, or get sick. They'll be sinless. Aging and dying, passing on your family traits, your family's honor, your family's wealth to your children will be obsolete. It won't matter. The Sadducees' impressive resume of self-serving politics, their contact list of worldly connections will be completely irrelevant in the life of the age to come. You see, children of the resurrection are people of a different kind. They carry the traits of God's eternal life. They walk in immortality and in God's unlimited power. They bear this imperishable fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus is saying, you have no idea what is to come. And if he were playing chess, maybe he would say, check. But he has one more move. He looked forward to the age to come, but now he's going to anchor it back in the scriptures that they accept and say, what about your own past? It tells you something too. Verse 37, he says, in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. This is the story of Moses' encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush, which is in Exodus 3. There Yahweh introduces himself in this way, as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus' argument feels pretty abstract, but in Jewish theology, it's, it's a valid way to construct an argument. It goes something like this. Premise number one, God cannot be God to the dead. He can only relate to living persons. Premise number two, God spoke of himself as presently being in relationship with these covenant patriarchs, even though everybody knew that by the time of Moses, they had been long dead 
or they'd passed at least from this life. Conclusion, therefore these men must be living persons waiting somewhere for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to them. So Jesus reiterates the nature of God. The Lord is not the God of the dead, which would be an absurdity. He is the God of the living, for to him all are alive. And this is Jesus' checkmate. We know it's a checkmate because all his opponents concede the match. If he goes to the cross, it's not because they have proven him wrong. It will be just hatred and pure, raw power that sends him there. Because their limited perspective has blinded them to the life-giving power of God. Now, I know there's still another question on our minds. That's the question of marriage. It's a bit of a brain teaser that Jesus introduces. That could be a barrier to really embracing this wide and wonderful reality he describes. Maybe you feel a bit of protest coming up when you hear Jesus say that in heaven there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. Remember, Jesus makes it clear that the age to come is of a different kind than the present age. For us, it's very difficult to conceive, to think of a world without evil or sin or death or loneliness because this present age is all that we know. But according to the Bible, the age to come will be far more than just the popular notions of some ethereal existence in the clouds. God has the desire and the love and the power to create a future that's completely beyond our imagination. In the glimpses that scripture gives us of the age to come, there's little hints that some of the wonderful things that we enjoy here or hope to enjoy will be there, but will be elevated to a new level of beauty and perfection and wholeness. The age to come will involve restored bodies, restored relationships, a restored natural world, a restored spiritual world, and more. But even there, the Bible struggles to describe it completely. It has to do it in metaphor and image and and things that just stretch to give us a picture of what it's going to be. We can only begin to imagine of a world where absolutely nothing is frustrated by bad influences, where our deepest wounds are completely healed, where, our deepest, where everything is done in love and integrity and justice, where everyone is free to be open and trusting because there's nothing to fear, and where the new bodies and minds that we're given are always healthy and strong. We can only begin to imagine a world where there's always more than enough for everyone, where your abilities transcend anything you've ever dreamed and where God's voice of love and guidance is always close and audible. But that's the age to come that Jesus is talking about. It's in that vision that Jesus teaches that marriage as we understand it will be transcended by something far more wonderful. The union of Jesus with his church is described as a marriage, as the marriage of all marriages. 
In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that every marriage is to be a kind of parable about the relationship between Jesus and his church. In a sense, the the living story of a couple's love is meant to be a signpost to something far greater. And that makes marriage something beautiful and good to work on. It's a way of glorifying God. But in the age to come, the book of Revelation tells us that the church will be welcomed into her her eternal home as a bride, one bride, one body, now united with her king and husband, Jesus Christ. And that bride will include the whole community of those who were learning to love and follow Jesus, whatever their marital status was in this age. Somehow in the age to come, we will experience a love that will unite all people together in a way that makes the exclusivity of marriage and the bond of family and the intimacy of friendship in this age just a tiny taste And words, words are stretched to their limit here in trying to describe what Jesus is talking about. But for those of us for whom marriage was a deep, lifelong joy, our common, united experience of the love of Christ in the new creation will bring us closer than ever to one another. There's good reason to believe we will recognize each other, that we'll spend time with each other, that will remember and rejoice in the story our lives told together, not only with our spouse, but with our children, with people we were in community with, with the church, and many other people who we shared experiences with without ever knowing one another across the world. By the grace of God, we'll experience healing from all the wounds we might have caused each other, and we'll feel a greater affection and delight in one another than ever before. But at the same time, the story we were telling through our marriage will have fulfilled its purpose. We'll be learning to tell a new story in the age to come, one we don't even have terms of reference to conceive of right now. How the story of our marriage fits in this present age fits into that new story we just can't imagine. Well, now we need to return to a phrase Jesus speaks that I haven't addressed yet in verse 35 that might have also caught your attention. If this is what God has in store for human history, then what does Jesus mean when he says, those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead? How can you be made or considered worthy The Sadducees lived in a closed universe. They couldn't imagine finding security and significance in any other place than the power and wealth and institutions of this age. And I think it's worth sympathizing with them a little bit. You can imagine a Jew looking back on hundreds of years of history and thinking, God hasn't done anything for us yet. We're still enslaved, we're still oppressed. We're not healed. How tempting would it be to toss all but the shell of the religion away and to join in with the people who look like they're successful? What about today? 
For many people, perhaps some of us, the presence of evil in the world leads us to conclude that we must be on our own in this universe. Many see the hope of the material comforts and the social power in secular society to be far more real than anything the kingdom of God might promise to us. And perhaps some here today have believed that science or reason have proven that we live in a closed, unspiritual universe, that anything good just has to come from humanity's efforts alone. But this isn't just a secular thing. I think religious people can lean into these places too. How many unanswered prayers can we endure before we just move into a less painful agnosticism and go and solve our own problems? When patient love doesn't get us the results we want with the people that we are with, It can be so tempting to just move into manipulative methods, whether it's in relationships or in politics. When we can't overcome a sinful appetite or shake a worldly way of thinking about ourselves, how tempting is it to just distance ourselves from God so it doesn't feel bad when we violate boundaries or cross them? I think we can all be Sadducees in one way or another, starting to see ourselves in a closed universe where the outcome is just up to us. But what if they and what if we are wrong? What if there is a God overseeing this whole project of history and what if the worth of what we've done in this age will be weighed eventually in God's balance of justice? Jesus declares that there is an age to come when we'll be called to account. Throughout the Bible, we hear how the Lord of all in his love and justice will bring the whole project of history to its conclusion. And impartially and justly, he will judge the living and the dead for our actions, for the secret thoughts of our hearts, for all of our motives. And his intent is to remove all the influence and scars of evil from the world, bring heaven and earth together again, and make all things new. So how will we be judged worthy of that age and all that it holds? I'd like to recall one thing that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. According to the New Testament, we're not considered worthy by how good we are, how together we have it, how successful we've been. That would make none of us worthy. The Bible says that we're made worthy when we acknowledge the the living God at work in the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're made worthy by recognizing we have nothing of worth that can qualify us and by trusting in Jesus to be our Savior and our Lord. 
John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And speaking of Jesus Christ, Peter preached, There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's the poor in spirit who recognize their need for a Savior and recognize Jesus as that Savior who are considered worthy of the age to come. Is it possible that our limited perspective could blind us to that coming day and to God's life-giving power to make things new? There is an age to come and it is possible to be made worthy of it by believing in and following Jesus, who is Lord and King of that age. Turning from our own way, becoming apprentices of Jesus. And yes, that's a challenge, but it's also a comfort. I think many of us carry that weight that maybe we're not worthy. Maybe the words of people who've told us, for one reason or another, that we couldn't be worthy. That people like us, people from that background or people with that history or people with that culture could not be worthy of the age to come. The Bible would say, no, those are lies. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we're all at risk of joining in the Sadducees' blindness. We have a limited human viewpoint We've only seen the world working in certain limited ways. We can be skeptical of those things that don't fit our philosophy, our theology, the scientific boxes that we've built. Still, we might say, I'm just trying to be reasonable here. I don't want to get duped. And it isn't a bad idea to at least analyze incredible claims before you accept them. That's totally fair. But is it possible that like the Sadducees, like the young Aldous Huxley, we reserve the right to be blind because we have a lot invested in the present age, the way we've constructed it for ourselves? Is it possible that like the Sadducees, we really don't want to make a new allegiance or accept this new king? Is it possible that we could allow our limited perspective to blind us to God's life-giving power? When I look at my life, I can see this, that, that my difficulty to make prayer a priority is rooted in my limited belief in its power to change circumstances. I create these brain teasers in my mind about the dead and dying things that I don't think God can change and then I give up praying for them. I can also see there's many risks of faith that I hang back from, sharing my faith or acting generously or stepping into reconciliation because, again, I've created brain teasers about them that I don't think God can solve. And so I resist his leadership. I shrug off the Spirit's prompting. I take his directions as advice instead of orders from my king. And in those situations, my God is too small. My vision of God is too small. 
I've allowed my limited perspective to blind me to the life-giving power of God. But Jesus knows that this safe and rational world that I've constructed is blinding me to the wide and wonderful reality he wants me to discover. He wants to heal me from this blindness. What about you? What are the brain teasers that you've constructed out of your limited perspective that keep you from believing in God's life-giving power? Is there a puzzle in your life that you feel the God of the universe is too small to solve? Is there an obstacle bigger than death that cannot be overcome by the one who raised Jesus from the dead? The picture Jesus paints for us in this passage is of a God who is not only faithful to the ancient patriarchs, who will not only be capable of raising Jesus from the dead, but intends to renovate and restore his entire creation and all who live in it to complete wholeness. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. You see, we do know the God who revealed himself in Jesus, and we have good reasons to believe that whatever he's planned, as mysterious as it might be to us right now, it will be exceedingly good. Just as God was faithful to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in ways they never could have imagined, just as he was faithful to raise Jesus from the dead, so we can trust him and submit to his promise to bring all his good plans to fruition in this age and in the age to come. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes these comforting words. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. By sleep, by the way he means die. We'll not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. I want to invite you to stand with me as we prepare for worship. I don't know where you're at this morning. Perhaps you're struggling to believe in God and his life-giving power. Perhaps struggling to trust in Jesus. Maybe today you're struggling to hope in God's ability to bring good out of disaster. Maybe you're struggling to believe that you could be worthy Or struggling to believe that God could change that persistent weakness or sinful habit in your life. Perhaps you've been tempted to throw away faith entirely and just to go your own way. We believe here at North Langley that the resurrected Jesus and the gift of the Spirit are present with us. And those are the evidence that God is not hindered by our puzzles. 
if you'd like someone to pray with you in any of those areas, we'd love to do that for you. Our prayer team will be here at the front and in the prayer room. Maybe there's a puzzle that you need to bring to God to trust again in his life-giving power. Let's pray together. God, we cling so tightly to the temporary riches and securities of this age. We close ourselves off to the power of the age to come that is at work in us and among us. God, we pray that you'd give us faith to trust in your power to give life to all kinds of dead things, to bring reconciliation to broken relationships, to bring healing to broken hearts and bodies, to bring meaning to suffering, to bring new vision in place of broken dreams. God, would you give us hope so that we would not give up and go our own way while we wait, sometimes a long time, for your power to come. Teach us, God, to love generously in anticipation of that day when love will be the only way anyone operates. And Lord, where our vision of you has been too small, would you fill it again with your glory, the glory revealed at the cross, at the empty tomb, where you are in heaven today, ruling and reigning. Be our vision, be our high king. Be the one that we know we can trust. Amen.